Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Richard Shields. Dr. Shields is Professor and Executive Director of the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Iowa. And today we're going to be talking about Dr. Shields' 2017 Macmillan Lecture, which he presented at the most recent NEXT conference at Boston, Massachusetts, entitled Turning Over the Hourglass. Rich, welcome. Thank you, Alan. I'm delighted to have the chance to talk about your lecture. I really enjoyed the entire lecture, and there's so much there for people to dig into, and I would invite our listeners to read his lecture, which is published in this issue of Physical Therapy. Let's start by talking a little bit about the title and the metaphor of the hourglass which you use in your title. One of the main themes of your lecture that you point out is that we as physical therapists can change time, which I thought was really quite innovative. Talk a little bit about what you mean by the statement that our interventions, particularly our movement interventions, can turn over the hourglass and extend life for people with compromised health. The title, Turning Over the Hourglass, is something I thought long and hard about because, you know, it occurred to me years ago it would take a lot of time and effort to explain to, let's say, a physician the power of movement. But today it's readily established that the cell function and health of humankind is readily affected by movement. Now, the caveat is when we have people with disability, the importance of movement is even more emphasized. And so the fact that movement is such an important piece of our genetics, it's so well conserved, which really means that it's it's been a key part of survival. And so when we turn over the hourglass for someone who has had some level of reduced activity, at the cellular level, it's very obvious that it improves the health of the cells and translates ultimately to an improved quality of life. And I'm not sure physical therapists always think about the power of what they can control with their interventions. I thought you made that point so very well in the lecture. And that brings me to my next question having to do with skeletal muscle. I must say, when I went through PT school, I I never really was introduced to muscle as an endocrine organ. And you talk about that in your lecture. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important? You referred to skeletal muscle releasing uh, substances called myokines directly into the bloodstream. Talk a little bit about what myokines are and why should physical therapists care about them? This is really an exciting area to me and for those in the field because, you know, most of us learned that skeletal muscle was just an engine. It was a way to generate a force, and we learned that through our biomechanics. But today, we really get to integrate the thought of a muscle that can generate a force but also takes on the properties of a secreting endocrine organ, and that's really new. When we really break down the word myokine, 
which are the substances that skeletal muscle can produce. Myo stands for muscle, and kine stands for movement. And so when you break down the actual word itself, it's suggesting that muscle is creating substances that move out of the muscle and into the bloodstream. And so a myokine is a very small protein or peptide, which is just a string of amino acids. And when skeletal muscle is active, we now know that it produces these substances and releases them into the bloodstream. Now, the beauty of this is it suggests that the coordination of the benefits of movement may be initiated at the level of skeletal muscle because these substances that are produced, they can move to various organ tissues, including they're small enough to cross the blood-brain barrier. So, you know, we often know that there are links to central nervous system function and activity. Well, now we realize that the muscle itself has the capacity to generate these substances, release them into the bloodstream, and influence tissues in remote locations throughout the human body. You know, and that brings us back to this whole concept of movement connected to the muscle, connected to the release of the myokines. And you argue, I think, very persuasively that exercise is movement, and movement is absolutely central to our field of physical therapy. One of the things that struck me in listening and reading your lecture, however, is you did not make reference to a movement system. Could you talk a bit about why that is so? When I think about the movement system, you know, it already encompasses the endocrine system, the nervous system, the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system, the integumentary system, and the musculoskeletal system. In essence, I've always equated that movement system to physical therapy. I don't think anybody would ever question that we influence all those tissues. And with the new breakthroughs in science, it's really being reinforced that if muscle can release things to influence other tissues and genes of other tissues, then it's quite simply the movement system is just the integration of a lot of other systems that are influenced by movement. Now, there are some parts of the movement system that have been defined, and, you know, that's where I think the jury is still out on the extent to which movement system classification schemes will or will not become part of the future of physical therapy. But from my perspective, the attractive part of physical therapy is that it's always been a part of these various systems and is not really something new, that movement has clearly been demonstrated to influence all these systems. So if you generically think of the word movement system, then it certainly fits very nicely with my Macmillan lecture. What I'm less comfortable with is drilling down as to what method of movement classification is necessary and ultimately would have to impact things like reimbursement and other things. So my lecture flew 
above that radar screen for various reasons and in the interest of really expressing the power of what we introduce to that entire movement system and all those systems that intercommunicate. It makes sense to me, Rich, when you talk about movement being the integration, all, all these other systems in the body. In some sense, at least in my mind, I think of movement as the result of that integration, if we do it correctly. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, the beauty is we've always felt this was so. But now we actually have molecular measurements that support that genes in skeletal muscle are regulating the development of proteins that we thought were maybe only made in the liver or in brain cells or in other tissues. So the power of the transducer, the muscle generator, just seems like a beautiful design of a system that if this generator gets used, it's going to put forth value and benefits to the other integrated systems that play a role in that movement system. That brings me to another topic in your lecture, which I thought was really well done. I've not been trained in the area of genetics and epigenetics, and so this was a real eye-opener for me. And you talk about the importance of both in the context of the APTA vision for physical therapy which is, of course, to transform society by optimizing movement to improve the human experience. And you make the case that we have to think about this vision both from a micro perspective, which is, of course, the genetics and epigenetics, as well as the macro, which is the endpoint of what we're trying to achieve as clinicians with our clients. And so you argue very interestingly that the future of our profession lies at both of these extremes and that we should be focused on both the micro and the macro. Could you touch on that a little bit? Because I thought that was really quite innovative. Thank you for that question because sometimes it's hard to pull two ends together. And I think I was able to really emphasize that as physical therapists, we need to understand the micro scale level because that's what provides us with the appreciation for the power of what our interventions have the capacity to do. And I brought that in through the field of epigenetics because it's one thing to move and to upregulate certain things. But when you now appreciate that we can tag these genes and they have a molecular memory. And when you enhance a memory, that means you have it for a while or for some length of time. And so the micro scale is so important because once we know how to optimally tag these molecular pathways that then are going to hold it for some period of time, it offers a protection to either somebody who needs a surgery or will suffer some kind of a health issue at some point in their life. Alternatively, the capacity to tag the micro scale in people who already have a disability of some sort is really a bold frontier because while there are great resources in exercise physiology and even in genetics, on people who are without pathology, 
the new frontier is how do we optimally deliver levels of movement to those who already have some level of compromise. And that's where the books aren't written yet. So I think that's an important frontier. Now, when we flip over to the other side, which is the macro scale, we need to think about how do we get individuals to adhere to these tremendous advantages that movement and activity provides. And that really involves a biopsychosocial approach where we are best at changing behavior. And if you think about it, physical therapists need to understand the micro so that they can adequately communicate the capacity to influence things. But in the end, we have to be able to teach people to adhere to the interventions that are of most value. And that involves the macro scale. And that's why we need to take into account not just something as simple as, is my patient happy or is my patient satisfied? We have to dig a little deeper and sometimes guide and understand what their expectations are and at times redirect those expectations based on the patient's perception. And so in that context, the, the nice thing about the macro side is that we're not going to change a system unless people don't perform the activity. And right now we know those without disability, only about 20 to 25% of the people who are healthy are active to a level that they would prevent a chronic disease. So, you know, adherence is a very powerful part that involves much more than just the genetics or the micro-scale environment. And I think that's what makes the field of physical therapy so exciting and attractive and that we have to, you know, push the frontiers at the level of outcomes at terms of patient responses as well as the micro-scale at the level of genetics and molecular changes. It's rather daunting when you think about it. As someone who's been trained in the science of behavior change, I've always been struck that I don't think we emphasize enough on the macro level, given the importance of dose and the points that you're making at the micro level, we're going to have to get much better at changing people's behavior if we're going to be able to succeed in the areas that you've talked about. As a program director, do you think we're doing an adequate job of, of equipping uh, the next generation of physical therapists with the skills of how to change a client behavior? Well, uh, to be quite honest, I think we could do better. And that doesn't suggest that we're not doing things well, but if we're really preparing for the new frontier, I think we can can do it better. And I, I think there are two ways that we can do that. First, knowledge is powerful. So when you articulate to a client, we can't assume that the person isn't going to understand the molecular adaptations that we learn. And that means that we have to convert it into a language that they understand. And so the first phase of getting buy-in on adhering to something that is of value 
is to be knowledgeable about what you're delivering. And so that's really the micro scale. Even though we learn the micro scale, we have to become adept at translating that message into an interpretable message so that the client clearly understands the power of what we're requesting that they do. So that's part of getting the buy-in. On the other side, you know, we really have to be adept at understanding things like empathy or tolerance to ambiguity and understand the upstream effects of the client, all of which influences the degree with which someone can adhere to an intervention. And that includes economic status and, you know, even when they're going to have their next meal. And so, you know, many of these downstream effects with adherence are not necessarily related to just understanding what is of value for them, but also influenced by upstream social effects that we have to do a better job of understanding if we're really going to impact these fields. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and uh, I just would urge listeners to read your lecture because you go into it in really much greater depth than we can talk about today. I want to switch to a, another topic that you address in your lecture, and it, you use some really wonderful examples from the work that you've been doing with people uh, following a spinal cord uh, injury. And you uh, quoted some very disturbing statistics. For example, you made note of the fact that a 25-year-old today who sustains uh, tetraplegia is going to live 2.5 years shorter than a similar patient sustaining the same injury before the year 2000. And you use other statistics as well, talking about how looking at changes in healthcare policy are having a detrimental effect on the lives of people with conditions such as tetraplegia. And you argue that our approach to healthcare in this country is accelerating the aging process rather than combating it. Why is this occurring from your perspective, and how does it relate to movement that you talk about in your lecture? And then lastly, what do you think PTs can do about it? So I really hope people are able to go to the supplementary videos that are uploaded to see the case of the individual with quadriplegia who adhered to regular movement with only 20% of his muscle mass because I think it illustrates the power of regular movement, even if it's in an individual who only has 20% of their muscle mass available to them. And so my point here was that because uh, lengths of stay and rehabilitation and days to discharge have been decreased so significantly, sometimes we feel we're meeting things like mobility needs by putting somebody like that in an electric wheelchair. Now, there's no question that lets us check a box in rehabilitation and may lead to earlier discharge. But, you know, the point of the video and the point of this part of the lecture was to really illustrate we have to think long and hard when we make a decision to take away a lifestyle of movement and provide wheeled mobility electrically. 
And so really the bottom line with that is that people with spinal cord injury already have diminished movement. We should always be striving to argue in favor of sustaining movement on a regular basis rather than taking it away. And the early data that I showed suggests that you know, we're almost losing a generation of tetraplegics who don't have the opportunity that we gave individuals with tetraplegia years ago when they had long lengths of stay in rehabilitation facilities. So, you know, I think physical therapists can't lose what we represent, and that is movement at all levels, and that we're always the ones pushing back and pushing the healthcare system to not settle on alternative methods of mobility prematurely. And, you know, it's very hard for me because in my research, we routinely meet with individuals with tetraplegia. And it's hard to find individuals today who have the level of function that we used to, years ago, be able to promote. And so the risk is if we are too quick to adopt what the pressures of the healthcare system are providing, then a whole generation may disappear and we stop teaching what's possible for tetraplegics. And so that's why I really hope the readership visits the site to see the video of the individual who sustained his activity for 30 years because we don't routinely have data like that where somebody remained active with tetraplegia their entire life and they're doing quite well. You know, if we take your comments on this topic to heart, it really does suggest some radical changes in how we approach the work that we do with people with major conditions such as tetraplegia. Yes, absolutely. And knowing what we know about the power of movement and even muscle activity, something I didn't address in the lecture, but, you know, the reason it's the new frontier is we always think of turning on a muscle for purposes of function. But it may be that that individual who's 18, who has tetraplegia, that activates his skeletal muscle, still may be getting the value of myokines that cross the blood-brain barrier and influence things like cognition over a lifetime. Imagine the future of rehabilitation not just linking words like FES, functional electrical stimulation, but physiologically valuable muscle activity that sustains the health of the movement systems. So that's why it was a, a little bit the new frontier because, you know, we always tie things like electrical stimulation to functional rather than just by the very nature that the muscle is being driven, even if it's through an electrical stimulation, there may be significant health benefits in the future for these young folks who live a long life. Well, your mention of New Frontiers leads me to my last question, Rich. In the latter part of your lecture, you talked about a new NIH initiative, which is called All of Us, and it's a 
a research program with the goal of recruiting a million people from various backgrounds over 10 years to develop a, a novel longitudinal data set. And much like the Framingham study, these enrollees will be followed over time and data will be collected on a broad array of areas, environmental, lifestyle, molecular, aging, epigenetics, and so forth. You talk a bit about the potential of this study for movement and for physical therapy. Can you talk about how you could see physical therapists contributing to this All of Us initiative? This is an opportunity that doesn't always present itself to be planting the seed for a longitudinal data set. And, you know, I can assure you that there will be individuals with various health issues that are encouraged to participate in this database, which may go 20, 30 years. But the the key that I thought about when I read about the All of Us research program is wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a nice set of individuals with disability who sign up for that and they're having routine collection of lifestyle data environmental data and molecular biomarkers to help really illustrate those who maybe who are active versus those who are inactive over a lifetime. Again, much of what we know about the benefits of activity are grounded by healthy people, electro-exercise physiology. The books aren't written on exercise physiology for people with various levels of disability. If we could get a cohort of individuals who participate in the All of Us trial, that would be a rich data source to start to partition out where those who went on and received activity and were in some sense remaining active based on lifestyle and perhaps rehabilitation and sound rehabilitation care, right to the level of molecular biomarkers for the rate of aging and metabolism may be highly supportive of making sure that in that first year after an injury that the individual with a disability may be highly prioritized to make sure that they get adequate training in the area of movement. And so this is just a snapshot in time where it will be initiated within the next year. And I just hope that physical therapists around the country at institutions where participation may occur will be very active in communicating to those with various types of disability to be followed. And that would be very helpful, I think, with understanding the natural population development of disability, activity, movement, and how it impacts these various areas of health. You know, in my experience, people with disabilities are less likely to end up in these longitudinal studies, and it will take some real concerted efforts on the part of the investigators to really achieve what you're talking about. and. It seems this might be an opportunity to really try to influence the NIH and, and what some of their research objectives are if we could get them to target 
a cohort of individuals with disabilities. You're right on target. And I know that there are other specialties that are soliciting right now to try to assure that groups of individuals in their specialty area are included. For example, it would be very important to have women who are pregnant enter that all of us program. And so I couldn't agree with you more, and that's why getting it out there is important because I think we could really look to assist to, to get some data that we've never dreamed of getting before. Well, I want to thank you, Rich, for both the, the lecture, publishing it in uh, PTJ, and for taking the time to do this podcast this afternoon. I really enjoyed talking to you about some of these themes, and I really want to encourage listeners to go to the journal and take a look at the write-up of the lecture. You, you won't be disappointed. Thanks again for all your contributions. Thank you, Alan.